Hi, this is Gilbert O'Sullivan, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Jim Cregan, who is best known for his work with Rod Stewart, for whom he co-produced and co-wrote and was Rod's musical director for two decades. Jim's songs have been recorded by people like Joe Cocker, Willie Nelson, and Kid Rock. And one of his songs was featured in my Follow Your Dream podcast Christmas special. He's performed with a who's who of rock, including Jeff Beck, Pete Townsend, Frank Zappa, Chuck Berry, Elton John, and Cat Stevens. And he's got over 40 gold and platinum records. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musical guests, Jim and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play a handful of his best works, and we're going to talk about them, and you'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And as you know, on every episode, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end. And you're listening now to my featured song in this instance called The Winner. It's from my Made in New York album by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, I thought it was appropriate because this guy is clearly a winner. <laughs> so, Jim Cregan, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Wow. Great introduction, Robert. I'm actually going to record that myself and play it to myself every night before I go to sleep. I think that's a wonderful idea, an absolutely wonderful idea. Well, listen, you've been in this business for so long, and we were talking just before we turned this on to record about all the guitars you got hanging behind you. And which one is your main instrument these days? Well, the main instrument uh, that I, that, uh, from my electrics, it's the, if you can see in your Zoom picture, it's a Fender Stratocaster from 1964 that I've had uh, since, um, well, I must have had it 40 or 50 years. Really had it, it's been on so many records. Do you think I'm sexy? And I was only joking and things like that. And the other guitar is, uh, you can't see it because it's out of shop, is a, is a 1969 or 1970 Martin D18, a kind of entry level Martin. But I tried all the guitars that were in London when I was buying, a, buying an acoustic because I had my, I had a Gibson before that, it was stolen. So I was desperate to get a new guitar. I went everywhere, all over London, tried every guitar that was available. And that one just jumped out as being the most beautiful sounding. And it's been on all the records that I've ever recorded an acoustic guitar on from, uh, you know, yeah, loads of, loads of work. Well, every time I do a session, I bring that guitar. Well, listen, I beat you by a couple of years because I play the bass and I have a Fender Precision, which is a 1960 Fender Precision Ooh, that I bought from a pawn shop in 1974 <laughs> for $100. It was Ooh. by far the best investment that I've ever made. Yeah. Okay. John Lodge said he wanted to buy it from me. He offered me $200. 
He said, you know, it's 100% profit. I said, well, I, I yeah, think I'll pass yeah. on it that. It is too. a bit used. I mean, there is that. <laughs> there is something about the age of these Fender instruments. You know, you mentioned the 64 Stratocaster, and I've got that 60 Precision. I mean, I know that Fender was sold at one time to CBS, but it, the older instruments really just had a special sound, didn't they? Yes, and you could get a variety within the same year. I had a had a '64 Strat uh, along with the white one. It was a red one, and it was a really nice guitar, and it would be worth still a bunch of money. I sold it ages ago, so I can't remember how much I got for it. But the white Strat had one amazing sound that was on the neck pickup. It was the most beautiful, creamy uh, Strat sound you could possibly get, and the other one didn't have it. There was the same pickup, same year, everything. I mean, what was? why was it different? I have no idea, but they are different. You can get crappy versions of vintage guitars. I had a, a 53 gold top, Gibson uh, Les Paul gold top. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I couldn't wait to get rid of it. But then, you know, I had a, a 59 Les Paul Black Beauty, and that was fantastic. Fretless Wonder. I don't know Frampton used to play one. I had one of those. It was great. And it also matched what I was wearing that night, which got, <laughs> made it far more valuable. That's what really counts. It matched what you were wearing. <laughs> you have to look cool up there. There's no question about that. <laughs> we were a lot of flash buggers in the, in the, in the Stuart band. There was lots of, uh, of silly dressing up. At one point, then we were getting ready to do the opening night of the new tour. We would have a sort of show and tell in the hotel corridor. We always had uh, all, all the rooms. Were, I always knew who was next to me because the rooms were booked that way. So it was a long corridor and there would probably be a suite at the end, which would be Rod's. And then at sort of uh, six o'clock, there would be this show and tell. You'd go in and you'd pull out the, the outfit that you were going to wear on that gig and it would be part of your collection of clothes for the tour. And sometimes you're out in the corridor and everyone would laugh so hard at what you were wearing. You'd go in and you'd take it off and stuff it under the bed and leave it in the hotel. You'd never see it again. I remember Rod came out one day in a, in a kind of an Arabic outfit with a fez on it. And we only saw it that for a glimpse of it for about five seconds as he came out and we laughed so when he went back in, it was gone. It was gone overnight. That didn't go too far, I guess. Well, listen, you know, here's a little oddity, okay, I want to throw at you. I actually know Rod Stewart from longer ago than you. Okay? Oh, go on. I want you to know, I was on the radio when I was in college, okay? This is back in Boston. Right. And in 1968, I was a freshman at, at the school. This is Boston University. And I was sent out to interview this band that was playing at a club called the Boston Tea Party. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Which was right opposite Fenway Park, the big baseball stadium. This was the big rock emporium at the time. And I interviewed Rod Stewart. I think he was playing with the faces. Maybe he was playing with Jeff Beck. I don't recall exactly. But um, it, was a, it was a fun interview for me. And there's no question about it. Tell me about your experience. How did you meet Rod? Uh, well, I first saw him play uh, at a place called Eel Pie Island, which is a strange, strange gig on a little island in the, in the Thames. And uh, he was there with um, Long John Baldry. And he only he sang two or three songs. 
but he was very good and, and Baldry always had a great band. So this was deep into the into the blues boom in England. You know, you obviously you would know about that. Because all the all the guys my age all grew up coming, you know, we the the big thing to have was a, an album that nobody else had that would be you know, Lead Belly or or you know something from Muddy Waters that was an obscure record. And that was your kind of your cachet. You'd arrive at a party with a, an album under your arm and say, look what I've got. And everybody would sit down and listen to it. We were, we were absolutely enthralled with American blues. You know, it's interesting. I have to stop you for a second because I've talked about this with so many British musicians. You guys were more enthralled with American blues than so many people in the States were. And the idea that you, you took that music and kind of reworked it and then sent it back to the United States is, is one of the great ironies of rock music. But if it wasn't for you guys, there would be so many of these artists that probably would have just remained unknown. I know. I remember. So I was managed at one point by a gentleman called Giorgio Gamelski, who ah, yes. was quite a legendary uh, impresario, entrepreneur, yep. manager, record company boss, and everything, and he used to bring over the uh, the jazz and folk, blues, um, extravaganza. And I remember seeing uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, and uh, he had um, Sonny Boy Williamson staying at his apartment with him, and we would go and see these guys at, at really good venues like the, the the Royal Festival Hall, which is you know. I don't know, 3,000 people. And these guys, they would say when they got the ticket that, that, to come over to England and they thought they'd be playing some hole in the wall uh, and suddenly they'd be on this enormous concert stage. And they were just del so delighted to be playing for us and we were so delighted to be hearing them. I mean, it was it was, a, it was an amazing time. I, I, I went to all those concerts. You know, I went to, went to the, um, the Stax Vault, uh, one saw Otis and Sam and Dave and oh man, all those people in those days. And I actually got to play with Howlin' Wolf at one point and Hubert Sumlin. On behalf of everybody in America, I want to thank you for keeping that music alive and giving <laughs> it back to us, okay? Well, hey, you know, it was just, it was a great time. We were, and... It wasn't just us that was into it. The audiences were into it too. I mean, that's what the audiences want to hear. It wasn't like we were living in some sort of bubble of, of uh, exclusive, we're into the blues and you're not. Everybody was into it. All the students were into it. Well, listen, I, I just interviewed Kenny Jones recently, a fantastic drummer, of course. And he told the story. I want you to tell me if you heard the same story. I asked him, you know, how did you meet Rod Stewart, because Rod Stewart, of course, was the singer for the, the Small Faces. And um, he said, well, we, we had Ronnie Wood come down and he played for us and he brought a friend with him. And the friend was Rod Stewart. I said, you mean he brought him down to sing? He said, no, no, no. He just brought him down to kind of sit on one of the amps. He wasn't singing at that time. And I said, so from that, he became your singer? and became world famous he said yeah that's that's basically how it happened yeah that that is true i, I i've heard that story from from uh, from ronnie himself they weren't necessarily looking for a singer which it, in some ways created a certain amount of tension because ronnie lane was the, the singer in the band at that time a principal singer and 
but the, the band kind of knew that they weren't quite as it, it wasn't quite as powerful as when they'd had Stevie Marriott. Of course, he was a great singer. So Stevie leaves and starts Humble Pie. The rest of the guys are sitting there going, what are we going to do? So they start this bringing in, in Ronnie Wood and, uh, and Ronnie brings in Rod. And Rod wasn't, wasn't auditioning or anything. He just came down to see what was going on because he was hanging out with Ronnie. You know, you do that in those days. I mean, it's harder to get me to go to a rehearsal now if I'm not working. But in those days, that's the kind of thing you did. You went to studios and hung out and listened to what people were doing. It was all very... Uh, uh, intermingled and and that's how we got the job you're quite right but I actually got the job uh, I was in at Los Angeles doing a, a session for Cat Stevens who was producing a, a, a girl I, I later married a girl called Linda Lewis so he'd written this song for her and he said why don't you bring Jim over with you because I already knew him I'd been on a world tour with Linda and and Cat Stevens and he said, why don't you bring Jim over? He can play guitar and, you know, and I'll produce a record. And there's some unbelievably great American session players. On the, I was so out of my depth. I mean, I was, I was bricking it, as we say here. And uh, after I'd done the tracks, we'd cut four tracks. I had a couple of days off while they did the singing and, you know, other bits. So I phoned up Rod Stewart, he'd given me his number some time ago, and, uh, and spoke to him. He said... Oh, well, actually, we're still looking for a guitar player. Why don't you come down uh, this afternoon and have a jam? And that's how I got the job. But if I hadn't been, if it hadn't been for, for Cat Stevens, I wouldn't have been in L.A. And if I hadn't been in L.A., I'd never got the job. Because Rod would never have flown me over to try me out. That was, that was never going to happen. <laughs> okay, I, I have to ask you, because you brought up Cat Stevens, and Cat Stevens was one of my favorite artists from the 60s. Of course, he went off, he changed his name, he gave up music, it seems, for a while. But tell me about your experience with Cat Stevens. Well, first of all, I worked again recently with him. A couple of years back, I went down to a residential studio in France and worked with on the Tea for the Tillerman 2, which came out a couple of years ago. This is what he did with his son, if I recall. Yeah, that's right. And they used quite a lot of the old boys. Alan Davis, the wonderful guitar player who's been Cat Stevens' sidekick for 50 years, maybe more. And the bass player, uh, Lynch. And, uh, and, and so some old guys and some new guys went down there and worked on that record. But my experience, and this is now he's a full Muslim. He, he, he prays in the morning and you know, plays three times a day. And he was as lovely as a man can be. He couldn't be sweeter, couldn't be kinder. And you were, uh, you, were, you felt very respected and loved when you're working on something. He would allow you to, or allow me, I suppose, to, um, to express an opinion. It wasn't anything like that kind of regimented studio thing where you, there's such a hefty chain of command that you just sit there quietly and, and do your job. This was a, a kind of a family affair. We all knew each other, or most of us knew each other. And of course, uh, Paul Samuel Smith, the producer, was an old mate of mine. I, I made the first hit record I ever played on, I made with him, um, which was um, Say It Ain't So Joe by Murray Head. I don't know if you ever came across that. That's me and Alan Davis playing the acoustic guitars on that. I seem to remember Murray Head. Did he have a hit of, of sorts? Yeah, he did. That was a hit. Yeah, it was a hit. Say it ain't so, Joe, please say it ain't so. That's not what I wanna 
And Paul Samuel Smith was with the Yardbirds, wasn't he? He was a bass player. There you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. With quite a, an iconic crescendo that he would build in. He would, in fact, he would lead the band as he climbed up the bass, um, you know, running up into octaves and then doubling into 16th notes. And there'd be this huge crescendo and the band would be, you know, their eyeballs would be bulging and veins would be sticking out in their heads. And then he would decrescendo and the thing would, would settle down again. It was great. That was, a, it was called a rave up in those days. A rave up. I remember that phrase. And he was, he was, uh, he was, he was great. He was a great player. He's a terribly uh, gentlemanly kind of man, very educated, very, um, uh, very sp softly spoken, not at all the kind of rock player that uh, you, you would imagine him to be being in the Yardbirds with Eric and all those other blokes. <laughs> all right. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. It's finally spring here in the United States. So I'm playing my song, Spring Dance, underneath this message. Spring is a time for renewal and growth, and I've just begun the third year of this podcast. It's been quite a ride so far. Over 170 episodes, more than 800,000 downloads, ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts, with listeners in 200 countries. My guests have included famous musicians, actors, directors, broadcasters, corporate CEOs, and others. My goal with each is to have fun and entertain you, the audience. And of course, to inspire you to follow and succeed at your dream. As a professional musician with a dozen highly acclaimed albums and millions of video views and streams, I infuse my music into each episode, and the podcast has allowed me to introduce my music to a worldwide audience. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails, which keep you up to date on everything. The links are in the show notes to each episode. And also, please check out our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you all for listening and keep on rocking. You know what? I want to go to that second part of the interview where we play some of these songs because we're, we're really going to get now into your time with Rod Stewart, who of course is just a world-class artist and, just a wonderful singer and has been around for so long and has gone through different phases. And I want to talk about that because, you know, he started off playing with Jeff Beck and the, and the small faces. He had that rooster thing going and the look and the feel and the, the, the voice. And of course, later in his career, he got into the standards. I want to hear about your experience with all of that. Let's start off though. This was uh, Rod Stewart playing live at Hyde park. I was only joking. We got one more to do, and I'm going to bring out my old pal Jim Cregan. Jimmy Cregan. Welcome, Jimmy. Come on. Come on, the pubs are still open. Let's get this done. Jim. 
Tell us a little bit about your experience there. Well, I'm not even sure why this happened, but Rod invited me to be a special guest and play the uh, guitar solo in, well, I played, I played the whole song, but the, it was about the song I Was Only Joking, which had a, about a minute 20 guitar solo in the middle of it. And these are the kind of things that never happen now. I mean, in, in, this is contemporary music. The chances of somebody given the opportunity to have a, a solo of that length, who's not the, you know, it's it's not Steve I or somebody like that. It's It was just me. And uh, and he wanted me to, to come on stage and play it. So we closed the show, he and I, doing that song. But, you know, fortunately, I got all the notes in the right order. <laughs> Which is not always the case. <laughs> so, so yeah, go on, play, play it. I dare you. <laughs> You're right, though. They don't seem to have long solos in songs anymore. Of course, music has changed so tremendously since the days when you were first beginning there. But, you know, listen, guitar solos are the essence of rock, okay? I like your thinking, and I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go to the second song. This is one of Rod's big hits. Of course, I'm talking about Hot Legs. Tell me about your experience there. Well, this was one of the very early songs that I recorded in 1976, I think we made this record. Footloose and Fancy Free, I think the album was called. And Hot Legs was one of the rockers. Now, there's, uh, some of the guitar work on this is uh, Billy Peak. Now, Billy Peak was our kind of secret weapon. First of all, Billy Peak could hold the entire band together by his rhythm playing. He was like a train. He's a wonderful, wonderful rhythm player. Once he kicked off, that was the groove, and you couldn't fall off it because it was so fat. And he was a, a great soloist in the traditional Chuck Berry style. He worked for 16 years with Chuck and, uh, and could play Chuck Berry as well, if not better than Chuck himself. So that uh, Hot Legs had that great, rock groove on it, Carmine piece, doing what he was very good at, which is, uh, you know, very hard-hitting, solid beat. And, of course, the magnificent Phil Chen, who's sadly no longer with us on bass, and Gary Granger, who I think came up with some of the, the iconic uh, bits in that, uh, the the bit that goes, which is, which, which is uh, all Gary Granger. It's wonderful, wonderful guitar player. And I did a lot of the uh, fiddling about fancy guitar work, if you like. I was the, the, the guitar player in this outfit that could, uh, was more chameleon-like. I could play folk music. I could finger pick. I could, I, I could do sort of delicate ballads and, and stuff and, and try and uh, fit in. in, in whereas, it was, it was Gary and, and Billy Peak were definite stylists in their own thing. And, and if it was out of their style, it was not, they didn't, they weren't as comfortable with changing styles as I was. 
you mentioned the guy playing rhythm guitar. That was almost a not a relic, but it was it was definitely a '60s kind of thing. You had guys that were playing rhythm guitar along with somebody else that played lead guitar. Of course, John Lennon played mainly rhythm guitar, and I'm yeah. thinking of um, one of the brothers in AC/DC. Is it Angus that played rhythm guitar with that outfit? Yeah, it, it's not kind of the the focal point of a band, but as you said. A rhythm guitar together with the bass and drums, it would just hold the thing together, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and he was he was I learned so much from him. You know, he was very kind enough to show me how he did it. And it's these are skills that are, are quite likely to get lost because actually I probably ought to do a little YouTube thing about how uh, well I should actually get Billy to do it because he's the he's the main man. He's still going. But it's a, it's all down it's it's all about playing all downstrokes. You you never play any upstrokes if you're playing that kind of music. All downstrokes and all the work is done with your left hand. The right hand is like a hi hat. It doesn't shift. It plays downstrokes, even downstrokes the whole time, and all the emphasis, all the muting, and everything is in your left hand. It's a, it's quite a trick, and it takes a bit of getting used to. It's almost a lost art to be a really good rhythm guitar. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it sure is. Okay, so let's go to the third one. This is Forever Young. Tell us about that one. Okay, well, this was, uh, we're in the studio cutting a track and it's not going very well. Uh, we, we just don't seem to be able to get it to fit right. The, I don't know if it's the song or the, the players or anything. And Rod said, um, he said I'm going to take a break. So, I'm gonna, you know, you guys do whatever you like for the next couple of hours. I'm going to go, I've got a pair of shoes I want to buy and I'm going to go out and get those and I'll see you, see you in a couple of hours. I mean... <laughs> I got a pair of shoes. It didn't matter. The studio was, you know, six hundred pounds an hour. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm right. going to go buy a pair of shoes. So. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, off he went and uh, left uh, me with Kevin Savagar, and um, I had just that morning uh, hooked up a MIDI guitar at home and was mucking about with it, and I came up with this uh, this riff, and uh, I said to Kev. You know what? If this song's not working out, do you want to work? work? Because he and I wrote a lot of songs together. We were, we were very close friends, and we are very close friends, and uh, and, and wrote a lot of stuff. So I said it goes like this, and uh, I said um, it's a kind of U two vibe. That's what I've got, and he said, "Oh, that's all right. That's quite a nice melody." Uh, and so we fiddled about with it and he came up with the chorus and we were mucking around with it and Rod came back. He said, oh, what's that what you're doing? I said, um, it's just something we've just, we're just knocking up now. He said, well, let's lay it down. So we cut the track then and there from what we had, just what we just, what we'd made up that, that pretty well that day. And later on, 
uh, maybe a couple of months later, we were doing the sweetening, putting on the, you know, some overdubs. And Rod said, uh, we were all gathered in the control room listening back. And he said, um, he said, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure about the song. Uh, I don't think it's going to make it to the record. And we said, uh, no, I, I didn't say anything. I remember that. I, I bit my tongue because, I, you know, losing that song off the album would have meant, you know, a loss of maybe $100,000, maybe $150,000 as a songwriter. I was losing every time your song got thrown off the record before before it came out. You were, you were thinking, "Oh dear, there goes you know, there's a nice Porsche." Or... This is the life of a real musician. Okay, get that <laughs> song on the album, please. So I said nothing. Kevin said nothing, and we had this wonderful engineer called Steve McMillan who never spoke at all. It was it was a room full of ego producer, writers, so he didn't bother mentioning anything. So there's a kind of a silence. And Steve McMillan turns from the from the console, looks up at Rod and says, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Rod. That's the best song you've got. And, of course, I, I was throwing money at Steve McMillan behind Rod's back. Um, but, but Rod said, oh, really? And uh, he said, yeah, it's the best song you've got. He said, OK, well, we'll finish it then. And that's how it got on the record. It came that close to not never being heard. When you think about that, when you think about the fact that it was a great song, it is a great song. And the thought that somebody like Rod was going to say, let's forget about it. This doesn't make it. I mean, it's almost crazy to be thinking about that. It's a wonderful song. And I'm glad you got the money. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. It's um and it's a beautiful his the last verse of this song, the lyric is really good. And when we do it in my band, uh we bring we drop everything out apart from maybe a little pad from the keys. And the uh, our wonderful singer Ben Mills sings that song very that part very softly. That when you finally fly away, he's hoping that I've served you well. Yeah. The, all the wisdom of a lifetime, still no one can ever tell. But whatever road you choose, I'm behind you, win or lose, forever young. And it's a sweet line to sing to your children. And uh, and we take it down to nothing and, and then build up as, as he sings for uh, win or lose. And he repeats that several times and it builds to a crescendo. And then we go into the chorus and there's not a dry eye in the house, hopefully. <laughs> It's a fantastic song. I can't believe that he was going to drop it. But, uh, you know, that's that's show business, they say. What can you do? All right. I'm interested. Have you gone through all of his iterations with him? Like I said before, he went from a rocker to a pop guy to a songbook kind of guy. Have you been with him throughout that entire transition? Uh, yes, in in uh, in spirit. Uh, and it, uh, next, you know, hanging around with him and having dinner, we are the closest of friends. I was best man at his wedding to uh, Penny Lancaster, who's still married to for, I don't know, 15 years maybe or so. And yes, I would be around when these things were going on. There was a time when, and of course, this is a, this is always a bit of a tricky one. He, he came up with the idea of the American Songbook and he got together with uh, a producer whose name escapes me, and an arranger whose name escapes me, and they cut some tracks, and they were absolutely magnificent. They were original. The arrangements were fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And I was thinking, God, this is brilliant stuff. 
And then Clive Davis walked in and went, Clive Davis, you know, the yes. legendary annoyance from Arista Records, <laughs> and said, no, this is far too arty. We want, we want uh, this sort of thing. And then he, 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 they recut things. And although it's still a very good record, it's really bland by comparison. It, 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 the, you know, Rod still does a good job as a singer. He always does a good job. But I thought the original idea was far more interesting. It was more adventurous. And anyway, that's another one. That's down the toilet. So you'll, you'll never hear those tracks. I only heard them once and then they disappeared. But I, he made a pretty good Christmas album. I don't know if you heard that with um, David Foster. That's pretty good. David Foster's a good arranger. Yes. Well, like I said, he's uh, Rod has been one of these guys that has stood the test of time. And, you know, there's not that many artists that you can say have been around and stayed at the top as long as he has. And I'm sure he has you to thank for a lot of that. OK, because you have been the rock behind Rod Stewart. Uh, we have been speaking here with Jim Cregan, a fantastic guitarist and songwriter. I'm so glad to hear that you got Forever Young into that album. <laughs> that probably allowed you to buy some of those guitars that are hanging behind you. Yeah, or, yeah, or, kept me out of jail. There you go. <laughs> it's been a wonderful experience. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, really. It's a great pleasure talking with you, Robert. Thank you so much for having me on your show. My pleasure. Now we're going to listen to that song that started off the episode. Again, it's the one that I dedicated to Jim because... It's called The Winner, and that's what he is. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Thank you.